Welcome to Prio's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trighauger, and I'm a communicator here at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. Today, I'm speaking with Christian Davenport and Scott Gates. Christian is a professor of political science at the University of Michigan and a research professor at Prio. Scott Gates is a professor at the University of Oslo and a research professor at Prio. So welcome, both of you. Thank you so much for joining me. I thought maybe we could just start really quickly with our own personal positionality here, uh, since we are three Americans. So uh, maybe, Scott, do you want to start with where you are currently, where you're from? I am... Well, I'm currently at Prio and the University of Oslo. I am from Minneapolis, my hometown, which has become the epicenter of uh, Black Lives Matter protests um, since the actions of the Minneapolis Police Department uh, precipitated a lot of protests. Um, So I could talk a bit about that. Um, And then I've also done research on on uh, nonviolent protest as well as police brutality. Christian, what about you? I am from New York. I am at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor and Prio, always. Um, research uh, state sponsored coercion and force, among other things. Yeah. Maybe, Christian, you could uh, start talking to us a little bit about the media coverage of the latest Black Lives Matter protests. Uh, I was looking at some background from your book where you talked about the Black Panther Party and the the media coverage of that and the sort of Rashomon effect is what you called it, where there are so many completely conflicting perspectives on it. And I was thinking about the the unfortunate uh, yeah, coverage that we're seeing now where a lot of it is extremely inaccurate and how it's a little bit odd that we're not even just relying on print media. Now we're, we're looking at social media and, and ubiquitous media coverage, yet it still seems very inaccurate. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, if this was the 80s, I'd say that it's the Rashomon effect on crack, but I, I guess the appropriate timing now would be the Rashomon effect on meth. So, um, so I think it's, um, it's incredible, right? Because you have traditional media, you have social media, everybody and anybody feels that they have the ability to kind of like post something. And then as a, con- as a consumer trying to pull all this stuff in, you're trying to figure out kind of like what's going on. So it's the Rashomon effect that's just magnified to the nth degree of complexity, which I think is highly problematic. Um, I think it's really an issue, right? So my book was about a specific social movement organization with particular leadership, with particular membership, with particular actions, with a particular claims-making effort and understanding of the world, we don't see that at all. And in fact, I think it's problematic to actually call the Black Lives Matter movement singular. It should be Black Lives Matter movements. And it's like social movement society in a kind of like um, Myers Zold and John McCarthy-like sense. So I think it's a mischaracterization to call it a singular movement. And that's kind of part of the confusion, I think, with what's going on. It's like you have these movement organizations in different locations, they all have slightly different kind of things that they're asking for, slightly different tactics that they're advocating. It's not clear who's a member and who's just showing up to activities. And so we need to make a distinction between membership and audience. And the media coverage is not helping because they keep people keep referring to this thing as a, as a movement. And that's problematic in the sense of as we move forward, um, trying to understand, like, okay, who engaged in what activities? Was that looting? Was that protest? 
um, we need to stop homogenizing because it's not at all a singular thing. And as we're thinking about who speaks for the movement, right? That's that movement's happening already where people are trying to, they're trying to grab out who's going to talk for these people. I'm like, it's not quite clear who those people are. And so um, the Rashomon effect is really about um, trying to reveal the variation that exists within events and trying to go from that variation to understanding the variation. Um, and But I think people are looking for a singular story. They're looking for a singular um, um, group. And that's, I think, not leading to an understanding of what we're seeing. It's interesting when you talk about this plurality, because it actually makes me think of the Norwegian context, since, after all, Scott and I are in Oslo. And, of course, there have been protests here as well, and people have been applying Black Lives Matter to Norway. And there was some pushback at first because a lot of people were trying to say that, well, this isn't relevant to the to Norway. It's not relevant to the Norwegian context. Um, this is about the United States, not Norway. And I think a lot of other countries have grappled with the same um, questions. But it seems like you're you're saying that that's just not relevant at all. Um, I would actually say, well, it's interesting, right? It's like, I, I think many people drew upon the American civil rights movement to not only highlight the injustices taking place against African-Americans in the U.S., but also to highlight, well, we have similar problems of a particular group here. I mean, so um, I was director of the Minorities at Risk Project for a while, so I very much believe that there's persecuted ethnic minorities and other types of groups around the globe. So I would think that, um, I think this is a great segue for the globe to talk about the persecution of whoever is in their society being poorly treated. So I think, I'm glad Norwegians are doing it as usual. Um, I'm glad that everybody is kind of like taking a toll to kind of evaluate what's going on within their societies and making connection to things that are taking place within the U.S. So, Scott, one of the things that Christian especially emphasized was the fluidity of the movement and the fact that there is not really one leader or even one ethos that has come out of it as of yet and that it's very dispersed. And one of the problems with that has been white supremacists, for example, in the U.S., infiltrating protests and committing violence that has then been attributed to Black Lives Matter protesters. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I can in the Minneapolis context in particular. Um, so first of all, I want to pre- present to be very clear here that uh, the police themselves were the provocateurs. Uh, police were engaged. The police murdered somebody. They've been engaged in a number of uh, murders, and I'll call it that. Um, but there's a long history of, uh, of a, a police force that's um, not held accountable, a extremely strong uh, police union. So even with a, the promotion of a Somalian who had protested the way that um, extra violence and police brutality were being handled by the police department, is promoted to um, chief of police, even he had n- limited power and authority to re- to um, revise policies and reform the Minneapolis police system because the Minneapolis police uh, union is so powerful. Uh, repeated efforts have been conducted at state level and at city level to make uh, reforms, and they've been stymied regularly. Um, so I want to start with that and say that a lot of the violence was actually perpetrated by the police. But on top of this, there are third parties, third parties who came to Minneapolis who are not even from the state, um, white supremacists. They've 
been a number of arrests now of provocateurs who were start arson, many of the arson cases, burnt down buildings, smashing of windows, and all of these things are being perpetrated by nobody who was involved with the protest itself, or indeed not even wanting the protest, but they want to sully the protest and they want to um, create an image of, of um, uncontrolled violence and mayhem. So that's one big problem associated with and this goes back to what Christian's talking about with, with many, many different movements, but it's very loose. It's not a hierarchical organization. It's a loose, it's a, it's a movement. Um, and that lends itself to a porousness. And the way the media is going to cover it is then um, very vulnerable to these kinds of activities by third parties who, who are not really part of the movement at all. So that was that I think is an important thing, I guess. And I want to turn back to the, the role of the union and research that I'm working on right now, which goes back to old uh, research on police brutality, which was not conducted in Minneapolis, but in uh, several other cities. John Brem and I in our, our book and several articles published work about um, the limitations of uh of police forces themselves to rein in renegade cops or wild cops engaged in in uh, violence against the citizens. Um, and our research showed there may be certain groups and constellation of police officers who generally conduct activity uh, which is peaceful and normal um, interactions with civilians. But there are a not insignificant number of police officers who have psychological dispositions, a proclivity for violence, a view that violence is a way to solve uh, problems and establish um, order in society. Um, and uh, the problem is that these individuals and their perpetration of violence is contagious. And so Normally, you get lots of conservatives who say, well, it's just a few bad apples. But if you continue the old uh, expression, it's a few bad apples ruin the barrel. And that is actually what does happen. And if you compound this by having a lack of impunity and no follow through and the lack of punishment of uh, bad behavior um, and a lack of follow through and sanctioning, on citizen complaints on officers who are regularly engaged in uh, excessive use of force, then um, you're going to have a problem. And this is even further uh, exaggerated in its ill effect is a lot of the training. First of all, uh, what it took educationally to get into uh, a typical uh, police force has been reduced consistently over the decades. It requires less and less education to become a police officer. And then accompanying this is all the extra training and the annual kinds of training and follow through training and things like that has been privatized. Some of these companies have been regularly associated with officers engaging in excessive use of force. That one company in particular was almost encouraging the officers to engage in violence and saying, well, your butt is on the line unless you protect yourself, nobody else will, and encouraging and 
in demonstrating ways that they could perpetrate violence against citizens, engage in excessive violence, and get away with it. When you have all of those things working for you, you have a, and a lack of filtering out these kinds of people, a contagion effect on behavior, you really are going to rot the whole barrel. This makes me think about a blog post that, Christian, you actually wrote recently on, on your personal website about how we need to move beyond negative peace. And I think this also ties into the calls that a lot of people have been making about being uh, anti-racist, uh, not just being neutral, but actually being anti-racist. So, and and you talk about the positive peace versus negative peace. Mm. So maybe could you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it ties into what Scott is saying here about the training of officers actually yeah. being so militarized. Yeah, it's um, uh, very provocative stuff, Scott. Uh, I mean, so many things come to mind, right? What I like, what I like about the discussion, and I'll, and I'll get to the positive piece, but what I like about kind of like um, Scott's conversation is we're actually asking some hard questions. Who pleases? What are they learning? What does policing entail? Um, who pleases the police? I mean, it, it's just um, these fundamental aspects of, which should be something that we're all concerned with, which I, I think we're so ill-informed about those particular dynamics, what type of people join. Um, what, if anything, I mean, there's a presumption that like, okay, you can give somebody sensitivity training. Well, who are these people that were there in the first place? And are they amenable to this type of sensitivity training? Do they care about oversight? And so there's a bunch of um, perturbances that we'd like to kind of introduce that I think are kind of problematic. But this gets to the broader issue of, um, I mean, the positive piece is like we're trying to move past um, just having the police not shoot people, right? I'm like, that's how, that's, how, that's how vacuous the negative piece is. We just like the police not to shoot people. Um, the positive piece is we'd like a positive engagement of state agents with the citizenry to help them thrive. I mean, look, look at how dramatically different that is from just don't shoot people. I mean, we're trying to actually get to something that's, that's positive. And so this is very fascinating to the extent to which um, this links back to these other issues. Like, okay, so we've allocated this social political responsibility to this group of individuals and we haven't really paid attention to who's been joining or, or what what norms are established before they get there or how they're trained or how they should engage with the public and then when they get into trouble or when they do something that we don't necessarily care for then we're not going to sanction them and therefore kind of like reinforce the, the initial problem to begin with so i think um that there's a lot there that needs to kind of like be cultivated but a large part of it comes from like we need to think through, I think, in the States, but also globally, we need to think through what kind of world will be like to live in and what role, if any, will the police play in that particular process? And I think that is essential because if we have a bunch of, for example, sociopaths who are engaged in violent behavior against the citizenry and we're not checking them, we're not eliminating them, we're not curbing them in any way, shape or form, we can't be surprised that that would then continue. And so some of the stuff that I'm doing with um, Ben Apple we're trying to talk about ending state repression and like, you know, not, not lowering it, but trying to get rid of it and think about what that would involve. And a large part of our argument is, well, okay, there's a citizen involvement component of um, protest and nonviolent direct action that, that signals that something is not correct with the political system. And then the, the correction of the political system is greater civilian oversight, greater civilian punishment of wrongdoing, constraints, participation, it's this broader kind of like package, but have to acknowledge that that's problematic as well, right? One of the reasons why someone might be for state repression is because they've become convinced that the people that are being policed are the, are the problem. I mean, so 
there's many people that were supportive of the federal police being sent into Portland because they were just like, okay, these people are out of hand, these people, citizens. Um, uh, and it's, it's leftists, it's looters. There's, uh, you know, they can't, the police, the local police can't check their problem. So now we need to send in the federal police who are perhaps better attuned to this dynamic. And this is like problematic in a different way, but this is all leading us away from this broader conversation, which I hope happens about what kind of society we would like to live in. Um, now just, um, the quick segue, what I found fascinating was, um, so as a New Yorker, there was a piece that came out about some Swedish cops that were in, um, the subway station. And they were interacting with this guy who was a little bit unruly and drunk. And they like sat down with him on the floor. They're laughing with him. They're talking. And it was hilarious for New Yorkers because we're just like, that's not how NYPD rolls. They would have been, <laughs> he would have been pepper sprayed, put on his stomach, you know, punched in the face. I mean, like, you know, that's so like this was set up for me as an example of like, okay, okay, Scandinavian policing should be a model. It should be something that is talked about within the context of the US because the way that the individual was approached on the ground, the way that they were approached after they even kind of insulted the police officer, the way that they responded was so was so humane. It gave a sense of kind of like where social interactions, where social political interactions could go. And I thought that was very powerful. Yeah, absolutely. I actually witnessed a similar um, incident or lack of incident just from my balcony the other day. There was a guy who had just lit a big fire on the sidewalk in front of the police station and it, it seemed pretty odd i don't know exactly what, what what he was doing um and he seemed a bit distressed as well and of course the police pulled up and i was thinking okay what's gonna happen here and they got out they very calmly put the fire out they just chatted with him they talked to him for maybe half an hour and he seemed to be explaining to them why he lit the fire and uh after maybe 15 minutes they they did search him but they were not being rough with him at all. They were, they just seemed to be chatting. Uh, and then eventually they, they did uh, arrest him, but it was, it, it, it took a good half an hour and I, I can't speculate about why they did arrest him in the end, but it was so different from what I expected to happen. Um, yeah. So very, very different from the U S although I will say that the Norwegian police are not perfect. So um, don't, don't get me wrong. Uh, they're not perfect, but they are. The requirement to become a police officer is you you have to have the equivalent of a bachelor's degree. The level of training uh, is much more extensive, and the degree of weeding out uh, problem potentially uh, problematic officers is much higher. So e even with those constraints, you're going to have problems, but at least you're not inviting problems by not considering. Listen to listen to you all. Listen, listen to the baseline that you all are talking from. The, the Norwegian police aren't perfect. I'm sorry. How many people were shot by Norwegian police last year? <laughs> Give me a break with your baseline. Oh, it's not perfect. It's not, it's not problematic. Ten, ten years ago, they shot some people in uh, Trondheim. Yeah. Okay. But, how many? Yeah. Okay. I'm like, give me a break. But listen to listen to you all. I'm just like, I'm I'm concerned about going to Seven Eleven, which I never do anymore, beyond like ten thirty or eleven, because I don't want to get shot. I mean, like, listen to you people. Come on, stop that. Yeah, okay. You're right. Yeah. I mean, I I think that's fair, Christian. At the same time, I mean. Uh, I I am a white woman in in Oslo, and I don't want to belittle people's experiences because the fact is there there definitely are a lot of young people in Oslo who get regularly harassed by the police. Now, is, Not shot. baseline is dead. Thank versus, you. That's my baseline versus alive. Yeah. Of course, but, of course, you're right. But I guess what we're we we bought your line about the positive piece. <laughs> yes. So we're yeah. working. I mean, you know, there's a lot more. So. Sweden and Norway have a perfect, I think, really well-established uh, negative piece. 
with regards to policing. But the, yep. And even in terms of positive peace, probably some of the best places on the planet. But there's still room for improvement. That's true. But, I mean, think of the dynamics of, uh, so a friend of mine is a lawyer, immigration lawyer, and he's trying to work on African-Americans seeking political, political asylum in other countries because he's just like, our case is as strong as any yeah. with regards to our persecution. I'm sitting there going, because I remember when I was in Sweden at Uppsala, people were going, well, you know, Sweden's got their problems too. And I'm just like, look, 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 I've seen your neo-Nazis and your skinheads. I'm not scared of any of them. <laughs> so if, if you want to talk about a relative standard, I'd much prefer to be in Scandinavia than in the States. And they were like, oh, didn't look at it that way. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's true. Um. Uh, Christian, do you want to maybe discuss a little bit about the the state repression and and your upcoming book and publications? Yeah, so I mean, what's what's interesting for me is um, the frames that people are using to apply to kind of the current discussion is is fascinating. So people want to kind of pull policing into a particular area. It's like what what is it actually? I mean, so as a as a repression and human rights scholar, I mean, the minute you're talking about state agents that can use coercion and force against the citizenry, I'm like, oh, this is a repression issue. And so I tend to I tend to view it in a particular way and then think of um, certain types of factors as being relevant. Abolish the police, defund the police. It's interesting that uh, those options come up because they were part of um, the radical black left. In many respects, they talked about these kind of options. And now that's kind of mainstream, along with reparations, which is just so bizarre for me that those things that were on the on the persecuted fringe are now in the mainstream. But um, but now the idea of abolition and the idea of defunding is, is for me fascinating because um, now literatures are getting pulled together. There's the there's the literature that Scott was talking about where we're actually talking about who are the police and how are they how are they structured, how are they funded. A lot of the conversation after Ferguson was kind of like, well, actually, the police had an, an incentive, a financial incentive for harassing the black population. And so now a bunch of these things now need to get morphed into the repression literature, which I think has just been it's been so caught up with kind of like macro characteristics that we forgot some of the the more mundane aspects, the more ubiquitous aspects of, of state kind of like coercive behavior. So I'm glad to see that that's coming back. But it's interesting because abolition and defund is actually relating to the stuff that Ben Apple and myself are doing because um, we're actually adapting this model that repression, like police brutality, is sticky over time. And that what's really required in order to kind of like change those behaviors to end to perturb the spell is something that's dramatic, something that's significant that uproots this um, kind of interne- interconnected dynamic of perceptions and practices and behaviors and so forth and expectations. And so um, the book is really trying to kind of like tease out exactly under what circumstances does repression end. And it's something it's, it's, I found it fascinating to think about. It's like, we've been spending so much time talking about onset and variation and lethality that the idea of living in a world where there's no repression is something that we weren't even allowing ourselves to think about. But same with the policing thing. It's just like uh, thinking of no policing. I mean, I'm, I'm, my mom made some comments. She's like, well, what are we going to do without the police? Now, now, first off, that's like her brother and many other kind of like cousins are police officers. She's like, oh, how she could imagine a world without police. And I'm sitting there going, most of the time we don't have police. And then Jim Scott's work goes on, you know, how, we, humans have been on the planet for how long and how long are we at states so a much shorter time period than we've been on the planet. So for the majority of the time on the planet, we've not had police. And so it's just like interesting that people seem to be so reliant upon it. And so it's somewhat beyond the context of the book, but the idea of exactly what role coercion, state sponsored coercion and force play within our lives and what are we willing to tolerate is really not questions. I think that that social scientists we, we've grappled with, I think as much that people are resigned to kind of, yeah, they're probably going to be around 
is somewhat sad, actually. Um, I did see something in the paper the other day that um, people on campus, students, especially kind of kind of com- coming back in the COVID context, they're really questioning the kind of role of campus police and so forth. And so I'm hoping that leads to, okay, campus police are questioned. Okay, policing of protests and civilians is being questioned. Hopefully we make the connection with the international dynamics as well. Do we really need military bases? There's like 800, 800 U.S. military bases around the globe. What do we need that for? So hopefully all these anti-militaristic conversations will go broader in that respect. So everyone, all this stuff should be questioned and all of it should be related back to this image of what kind of world would we like to live in. And so I think this the positive peace thing is still kind of very pervasive throughout um, many aspects of my work, but um, I hadn't quite made the connection to this this very microscopic kind of policing conversation until recently. I'm like, oh no, actually this is back. This is back to peace. This is back to our broader understanding of what we want to do. Um, there's a, um, Nicole Siegel's got this book called Violence Workers, which really helped me kind of get there because she's linking. She's like, why do we separate the police from the military? Well, because we believe that they're distinct jurisdictions. Well, why do we separate kind of like interstate from domestic kind of uses of coercion? I was like, well, because we believe they're distinctions. And she's like, no, there's not. Um, if you start looking at this group of individuals in the United States and start looking at where they get employed, it's public, it's private, it's domestic, it's international. And so uh, I'm hoping this moment kind of really broadens us up. I, I want to add to that on the last point. And that there, when Eisenhower talked about the military industrial complex mm-hmm. and the police were brought into that. Um, so there was a, a lot of effort with, um, well, the, in, the defense industry was creating all of these um, things like anti-mine vehicles um, and other things in which they were vastly outproducing what the needs of the U.S. military was. And so then what they do is then they put it in a budget. Congress puts in a budget to help subsidize the sale of these militarized units into police forces. So you get a little town like Mandan, North Dakota, and they have military-grade weapons. They have military-grade anti-mine personnel vehicles. It's due to uh, economic incentives, and it's not due to any effort to understand the role of creating secure and stable society. It's mm. it's many more interests that are at play um, in, in the system. I want to add one other point, which is about what you said, Christian, about um, the attention and the changes that occur. And I think those are all really encouraging. But I'm also a little bit disappointed in how difficult it is to engage. Minneapolis uh, City Council voted unanimously to disband the Minneapolis police force, but they actually don't have the sole jurisdiction to do that. Mm. Uh, And then other political actors and institutions prevent those kinds of reforms from occurring. So I think for a, to attain a positive peace as a goal is going to be, is going to entail extremely hard work and a lot of obstacles will be put in place. Some obstacles were unintentionally there, but they exist that limit reforms and make it more difficult for them to be enacted. Um, it's, 
it's it's a complex situation because actually if I I have said I was going to talk about a little bit about the irony of of Minneapolis. Minneapolis's mayor is quite progressive and um, the last guy that you would think would be the mayor of a city that would be the epicenter of of the conflict. And the congressman is Omar. I mean, we were really talking about a, a pretty progressive political scene. At the same time, you have over the history of Minneapolis, there has been um, patterns of segregation, initially towards uh, segregation of the Jewish population, segregation of the black population. Um, over time, uh, what what helps in terms of the statistical measures of segregation in Minneapolis is there are many different minority groups. So there's a large Somalian population, a large Hmong, that's Laotian hill people population who came after the Vietnam or the fall of, Viet, of South Vietnam, um, a large Native American population, uh, and then a white population, but all of those different minority groups. And so unlike many cities like Detroit or Chicago, well, Chicago has a Latin population, but a lot of American cities are black and white with everybody else being much greater, uh, much smaller minorities. But Minneapolis has many minorities. Um, but I will say uh, the Native Americans and blacks are the ones that if you look at poverty statistics um, and, and those kinds of aspects of, of uh, measuring uh, quality of life, they don't, there's definitely problems in Minneapolis despite the political efforts of, of, uh, of leadership and political leadership in the, in the area. Yeah, it's that that is uh, extremely concerning. And I've seen the same paradox in my hometown in Seattle uh, in that it is thought of as a very liberal place, but it's incredibly segregated. We had one of the, I think we had the most diverse zip code in the United States at one point in terms of uh, different, different ethnic minorities in the city, but the city itself is also one of the most segregated cities in the U.S. and the police are notably uh, quite brutal. And there have been reports on that, which is very, very concerning. Um, Christian, do you want to take the last word? We are kind of running out of time now, but do you have anything you want to add before we wrap up? I mean, what, what I like about this moment is like, look, listen to the conversation, right? We're talking about segregation, which implies that that's a problem. We have some idea of what the world should look like. We're talking about jurisdictional problems, about kind of like, kind of like political overreach, uh, the president doing too much locally, local folks taking powers they don't have. I'm like, I'm loving this moment as we're like actually talking about some real stuff. I mean, I want to get back to like, yeah, you know, uh, a Somalian might not necessarily be the best representative for African-Americans because Africans and African-Americans don't necessarily get along. Right. So it's like I'm like I'm like we need to be we need to get in that space to get to get to the devil in the details. And also like um, kind of like who are you going to call dynamic? Right. It's like the police are called for so many things that they're not trained for. So we also need to have a civic education campaign to kind of better teach individuals other numbers on the phone so they can figure out who to call for what purpose. And so we could get to a better outcome if we could think about, okay, well, what other numbers should we have? You know, psychologists, social workers, magicians. I mean, what do we need to have in society to kind of like, you know, to, to like resolve different types of problems? And so I love the moment in the sense that it's opening this up and we've not had the space to talk about it. We've not had an openness 
on almost any level to kind of get there. And now we seem to have a bunch of people who are kind of like, okay, enough with some of these problems. Let's, let's try to address them. And I'm like, there's a window, but that window's going to close. And I'm not sure if that's going to close before the election or after the election, but it's like, it's going to close. So I'm just like everything and as much needs to be, get done now as, as humanly possible, because once it closes, then we're done and then we're back to business again. And so um, from that perspective, I'm, I'm more hopeful now than I've been in quite some time. Well, thank you both so much for talking with me. This has been very interesting and extremely educational. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Christian. It was fun. Good to chat with you all. Yeah, it was. Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. You can listen next week to hear PhD candidate Maria Sanlis talk about her experience as a young female researcher doing fieldwork in conflict-torn Mali. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, Prio, located in Norway. For more information, visit prio.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trigg-Hauger. Music by Martin Rennemull. Thanks to Scott Gates and Christian Davenport for speaking with me this week.